This week on the show, we have strategic thinking to keep FreeBSD relevant. We are reflecting on the soul of a new machine a little bit. We have 10 gigabit Ethernet benchmarks on Linux distros and FreeBSD. We have also NetBSD integrating LLVM sanitizers in base, as well as FreeNAS 11.2 on DistroWatch. This week's episode of BSD, now. BSD Now, episode 285, BSD Strategy, recorded on the 13th of February, 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we have you back in this week's episode. Hopefully, this is a little bit more lip sync than last week's episode. Unfortunately, we found out at the very last minute, so sorry for that. But we'll try to fix this one here right away before things get out of line. And... Speaking of lines, we have headlines, as always, for you this week, uh, starting with strategic thinking, or what I think, what we need to do to keep FreeBSD relevant. Yep, uh, so this is a, a post from Alexander Leidinger, uh, who I've met and talked to a few times, uh, and he goes on to say, Since I participate in the FreeBSD project, there are from time to time some voices which say FreeBSD is dead, and Linux is the way to go. Most of the time, these voices are trolls or people who don't really know what FreeBSD has to offer. Sometimes these voices wear blinders and they only see what's in their little world, which happens to be mostly Linux, and they think that's all that exists. Um, and they don't see the big picture, especially more uh, you know, competition simulates business and having a monoculture of just Linux would actually be worse for everybody. Uh, anyway, sometimes those voices raise a valid concern, and it is up to the FreeBSD project to filter out uh, those that would be beneficial. Recently, there was some mail on the FreeBSD list in the sense of, uh, what about going into a certain direction? And I think the one he's alluding to was about writing things in Rust. Mm. Um, some people just had the opinion that we should stay where we are. In my opinion, that is uh, a similarly bad as saying that FreeBSD is already dead. Uh, or if we just tried to always do what everybody else was doing, that'd be bad too. Uh, so we don't want to stagnate either. Uh, we should not hold people back from exploring new and different directions. Sometimes uh, they may want to write a kernel module in Rust or whatever. Well, go ahead and give it a try. And in fact, that's already been done. And then, you know, it can go in the ports tree and people can start playing with it. Um. For my personal Alan opinion on this, um, I think that REST is interesting, and if people want to start doing that, maybe it makes sense. Um, I don't think that spending a bunch of time rewriting working code into another language in hopes of not breaking it um, is necessarily a good idea, but maybe we do want to consider having new things that we write built that way from the beginning, uh, especially if we're using something like Rust that can interoperate with C nicely, means that we have the option of doing that, of just building new components the new way and leaving the old components undisturbed uh, or just maintaining them rather than just letting them rot, but um, make a slow transition rather than trying to do a big effort to forklist everything up and have a lot of churn that maybe doesn't actually have much benefit. Yeah, 
the bootloader is actually a good example for that. Remember the old fourth code that we had in there, and now we're more in the Lua area? Right, although most of the bootloader is still C and assembly, but yes, the menu system is much more approachable now. Mm. Uh, so anyway, uh, this discussion on the mailing list also triggered some kind of where do we see us in the next few years kind of strategic thinking reflections. Uh, and that's what he wants to present here is his own opinions about what we in the FreeBC project might want to look at to stay relevant in the long term, to be able to put this into scope. I want to clarify what relevant means in this case. FreeBSD is currently uh, used by companies like Netflix, NetApp, Cisco, Juniper, and many others as the base for products or services. It is also used by end users as a workhorse, like a mail server, web server, etc. Uh, staying relevant means in this context to provide something which the user base is interested in uh, and or that makes it easier or faster for the user to do what they want or deliver what they need to deliver. Uh, and this in terms of time to market uh, to a solution, right? Like the amount of time to deliver a service. Uh, or I think especially applies to if you're trying to make an appliance or a device like, say, NetApp is, making it easier to make the next version based on newer FreeBSD uh, is is one of the big selling points there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so they've uh, categorized a list of items that they would like to uh, that are important and we'd like to see new features or code or documentation or polish or project infrastructure. Uh, and so we can look at that a little bit. And here. Uh, so it talks a bit about virtualization uh, and trying to catch up there. Uh, while Beehive is coming along, uh, Zen is actually pretty much uh, there on, BS on FreeBSD right now. Uh, and I think is just not given the consideration it should be sometimes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think uh, there's a bunch of work that could go into FreeBSD to make it easier to do the cloud init type stuff or just to to feed the configuration in from outside of the box uh, and so on. And they also talk about ready-made containers and the fact that if we want to run ready-made Linux containers, we'd need an updated Linux emulator. Although at that point, uh, if all the containers you want to run are Linux, it, it doesn't seem to make very much sense to do that on top of FreeBSD. Uh, so probably what we want to do is get it so that we could actually have native FreeBSD containers. Yes, um, because even it, like this week, there was another exploit possible in the old uh, infrastructure of Docker that made people break out of the Dockers and have full root privileges. So I would rather prefer the security of a BSD jail if that's possible to integrate. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also talk about uh, Kerberos, and I know that it was uh, one of the blockers when we were trying to fix OpenSSL in base uh, to the newer version. Um, and so getting that sorted out might be uh, quite useful. Um, there's also talk about software-defined networking and things like Open vSwitch. And yes, that would be good. Um, other parts of software-defined networking like OpenContrail uh, and Tungsten Fabric, I guess they call it now, uh, and other bits yeah. of OpenStack and Open Daylight and so on. Um, they mentioned sensors in particular, getting information from motherboards and chassis and disks and whatever, uh, and 
a bit about the old sensor framework from about 10 years ago that was done as a Google Summer of Code, um, but caused some problems, but never got replaced either. Uh, so while removing it may have been the right thing to do, not having a replacement doesn't seem like it was the right thing to do either. Hmm. Uh, also, to continue working on high availability and things like that, there was originally the reference implementation of MP uh, multipath TCP was on FreeBSD, but it doesn't seem to have ever actually made it into FreeBSD. Uh, and it would be good if it did. Mm. Yeah, especially in the networking area, we have a lot of good uh, things to show. And uh, probably the marketing, if you want to call it that, isn't that good we, we do. Mm -hmm. And then documentation. Well, FreeBSD has a reputation of having good documentation. That documentation... Uh, has not aged well over the last five or ten years uh, and could use quite a bit of work uh, and there's just not that many people working on it. So need to get more people into working on that and get that sorted out. And part of that might actually be making that easier to do. Yeah, I'll be the last one to dispute that. Um, and definitely it could be improved in many places. Uh, it's just difficult to find the people to uh, to work on that or making it better or get new people there to help yeah. out. And they talk a bit about uh, improving the tooling there and then just general polish things in BSD. Uh, you know, details matter. If people have two options uh, that are roughly the same features, uh, which one are they going to take? Uh, you know, we need to have the nicer, more, I wouldn't say productized, but uh, complete solution and if we want to win uh, one of the things that comes to mind there is dtrace uh, you know while dtrace works quite well um, you need things like dwatch in order to actually make it a bit easier to work with or uh, something like the zfs storage analytics tools uh, from oracle to make it easier to actually have a, a dashboard or something with that data mm. Yeah, uh, and nice. then a common one is talking about the defaults in the ports tree. Um, you know, a bunch of those maybe could be uh, better, and so on. Anyway, yeah. they go on and on about that. They talk a bit about the uh, CI system, but we don't maybe make the best use of that yet. Uh, and then you know we have some fuzzing projects underway, but we could really get that beefed up and then of course there's the website could use a lot of work uh, yeah uh, sure um, some of these things are being talked about sometimes more sometimes less or they get um, back into the limelight from day to day but it's difficult to because some of these things are huge projects they take a lot of mm -hmm. uh, time and, and uh, effort to it's not just oh from today to tomorrow we switch the website or uh, some other infrastructure related project but yeah someone needs to get started on that and defines the path forward and says okay we'll have a path forward and, and a team together that's actually doing the work and is making progress yep <clears throat> so next up uh, we have slightly odd for BSD now, but kind of a book review. 
Yeah, one book I haven't read yet, but it's on my to-reading list. It's uh, The Soul of the New Machine, and we have, of course, yeah, Brian so Cantrell's this is, chair. Uh, <laughs> one of the very few books that I've actually read. Um, <clears throat> when I first started teaching, uh, one of the other professors who I happened to share an office with uh, and I were talking a bit, and, uh, you know, I was mostly do, teaching sysadmin stuff, but we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, my interest in FreeBSD and so on. Uh, and so he actually lent me his paperback copy of The Soul of a New Machine. And I basically took it home and read it and, and then gave it back to him. Okay. <clears throat> um, and I found it very interesting in, in the kind of seeing how a new computer system was designed. So if, if you've not heard of the book before, it's basically uh, not a biography really just a, a history of how uh an early computer company that doesn't exist anymore uh built one of their new computers i think it was one of the first 32-bit computers um and kind of the story of of you know the struggle to do that and the, the setbacks and getting it working and making the decisions and and so on it was very interesting okay and so, yeah, I, um, Brian Cantrell mentioned this a couple of times in his talks, uh, but now he has something on his blog, the Observation Deck, about the uh, uh, reflections on the soul of a new machine. Right. So this was, I think, uh, he recommended the book uh, to some people, I think, including uh, Jess Frizzell. Um, and then she went on her vacation and read it and kind of live tweeted her reactions as she was reading through the book. And it kind of started a, a whole thing about it. Uh, and so this caused Brian to go back and reread the book that maybe he hadn't read in, in quite a while uh, and have a, a different perspective on it now that he's uh, older and in a different position. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically yeah. he says when he first read it, he was an undergraduate. Uh, you know, he was on a break from school uh, and he was, you know, browsing the family bookshelf and came across the soul of a new machine, uh, took it off the shelf and, uh, read through it and found it very interesting. Um, but that was over two decades ago now. Uh, and when he recommended the book to some other people, uh, he came back to actually reading it himself. Uh, well, he said he had referred to it, uh, at times over the years, reading certain sections or whatever, he hadn't actually read the whole thing again in a long time. Uh, so he says he's experienced a kind of reflected recommendation. I was inspired to reread the book that I was recommending to people. Uh, so shortly after I started reading, I began to realize that contrary to what I've been telling myself for years, I had not reread the book in full uh, since that first reading more than 20 years ago. Rather, over the years, I had revisited certain sections and so on. Uh, he says uh, a particular uh, visceral example that kind of stood out during the reread was early in the book, there's a feud between two rival projects uh, that are, boils over into an argument at a Howard Johnson's, which is a like a breakfast restaurant, uh, that becomes known among the Data General uh, engineers, that's the name of the company was Data General, uh, as the big shootout at Hojo's. <laughs> uh, so the author... Uh, has little more to say about it. You know, the organizational civil war serves merely as a backdrop to the story of uh, the computer they're building. Um, and I don't recall this having an effect on me when I first read it. 
but reading it now, it resonates with a grim familiarity. In an engineering career of sufficient length, a beloved project will at some point be shelved or killed, and that moment will be sufficiently traumatic to, uh, to be seared into the collective memory and memorialized in the local lore. So if you haven't yet had your own shootout at Hojo's, it's uh, regrettably coming. And may your career be blessed with a uh, few of such firefights. But, you know, something that was just something that happened in the book before now uh, was something that spoke to him a lot more. And uh, anyway, there's more in there. I don't want to spoil the book for anybody, but uh, it's definitely worth reading the book uh, and uh, then maybe looking at various people's different uh, kind of reflections and reactions to it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there are a couple of responses already in the uh, comment section of the blog post, and I guess there Actually, will yes. be more. Uh, one of the comments is from the daughter of one of the focal characters in the book. Oh, wow. Yes. If that's not great, then I don't know what. See, that's, uh, that's well, already Mostly she's circles. pointing out that, you know, make sure that you don't come away from the book uh, without realizing that, you know, some of these people sacrificed... Uh, a lot of time with their family to do what was done in the book and so on. And that, you know, maybe they ended up regretting that. Uh, but that was after the book kind of thing. Um, uh. Also, uh, the book served as part of the inspiration for the TV show uh, called Halt and Catch Fire, which is uh, a bit more about making like a, an IBM PC clone uh, and, you know, obviously dramatized a lot more. But... Um, you know, if you want a TV show to binge watch, uh, Hulk and Catch Fire <laughs> is uh, partly inspired by this book. But uh, so if you've seen the show and liked it, you should definitely check out the book because it's actually uh, very good and more uh, is very true to life, unlike a, a dr dramatized TV show. Mm, I understand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If that's not a recommendation for people for a long weekend, then uh, yeah. <laughs> to get the book. <laughs> so, time for the news roundup this week. We have an out-of-the-box 10 gigabit Ethernet network benchmark on 9 Linux distributions plus FreeBSD on Pharonix. Yep. Um, so, they uh, apparently last week started running some fresh 10 gigabit networking tests across Linux. Uh, and the tests have now been extended to cover nine different Linux distributions uh, plus FreeBSD 12 to compare its out-of-the-box network performance. So this is out-of-the-box with no extra tuning. Um, so they tested FreeBSD 12 against uh, Integros 19.1, CentOS 7, Intel Clear Linux, Debian 9.6, Fedora Server 29. I didn't know there was a Fedora Server. Uh, OpenSUSE Leap 15, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, Ubuntu 1804.1, and Ubuntu 18.10. Uh, the tests were done on a Tyan server board with two Intel Gold 6138s, 96 gigabytes of RAM, uh, Samsung 970 Evo SSD, and the 10 gigabit cap uh, capacity was provided by an add-in HP card, which is a two-port uh, QLogic 8214, which is actually a, a NIC I don't have any experience with. 
I've tried a lot of different 10 day Kinects on FreeBSD, but I've never come across the QLogic one. Hmm. Okay. So this is more exotic, uh, you mean? Um, well, it's, I think it's what HP does by default, but I don't deal with HP servers very often. Uh, okay. Although most HPs have Broadcom, actually, so I don't know. Um, I'm just glad that that one happens to work in FreeBSD or this test wouldn't have been... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would only be nine Linux distributions and not being worth mentioning in this episode. <laughs> right. Uh, so the first test they did was uh, 60 seconds of iPerf3 uh, with one concurrent connection. Uh, and in that test, FreeBSD 12 uh, beat most of the Linuxes. Or all of the Linuxes, actually. So most of the Linuxes were in the 75.50 to 79, uh, 75 megabits range. Uh, but FreeBSD was over a full gigabit per second faster. Uh, the only laggard uh, was the Intel Clear Linux, which only did about 6 gigabits. If these are all on the same machine, that seems a little weird. Although... I do notice that Clear Linux uh, compiled with quite a few different uh, compile flags on iPerf. Uh, then they did another test, uh, same thing, but they did five parallel connections, and that caused uh, pretty much all of the Linuxes to get exactly the same score, along with FreeBSD, basically saturating the card. Um, and so basically every one of the OSs was able to max out the 10 gig, except uh, Clear Linux and Ubuntu 18.10 for some reason. Huh. Interesting. Yes, so Ubuntu 18.10 uh, got slower when you oversubscribed it a bit. Is that their server edition or their I desktop thing? Hmm. Uh, and then they did yet another test where they bumped the number of parallels up to 20. And again, most of the OSs reached the physical limit of the card. Uh, and then Clear Linux got maybe just marginally faster, uh, and Ubuntu got slower. Huh. Um, but it's only Ubuntu 18.10. Ubuntu 18.04 uh, was with the rest of the pack. So something changed there, and maybe it's a regression. Probably, yeah. Good to uh, know then for they them. tried a different program called Nut TCP. Uh, and with that, again, uh, FreeBSD well out ahead of the Linuxes. Uh, and then with NetPerf um, for 60 seconds on TCP request response, uh, FreeBSD was out in front of everyone except the Intel Clear Linux, uh, which this is the first test that Clear Linux wasn't near the end of the pack, uh, suggesting that maybe it was tuned specifically for uh, this type of workload out of the box. Mm-hmm. So that looks promising. Yes. So overall, in the, the tests they did there, they actually compared FreeBSD. Uh, FreeBSD was either in first or second place out of the 10 different distros. Okay. That's uh, promising, yeah. I mean, there's always room for improvement, but I think in the networking space, there's been a lot of work recently and in the previous release as well. So... That's looking like mm -hmm. it's giving already some promising results in benchmarks. I mean, benchmarks are always some kind of measuring, but the real performance gains are the people who are using that to uh, their full. Ah. It'd be interesting uh, to test a bunch of different network cards, although it's more complicated than it sounds because you have to do things like test all of them using the same PCIe slot, 
uh, because a different slot might be in a different NUMA domain and would affect the results of your test. And you have to make sure that you actually pin the, the test and the interrupt threads and so on the same. Uh, you can very easily end up benchmarking something different than you actually thought you were benchmarking. Uh, yeah, the you know, test setup is between these, Yeah, see a difference between these two cards, and it was caused by some outside factor that wasn't actually the card. Uh, and so it gets very complicated. Mm-hmm. So as always, uh, take the Foronix results with a grain of salt, but in their pretty straightforward, out-of-the-box test of using iPerf and NetPerf, uh, they found FreeBSD performed very, very well. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, next up, we have the integration of the LLVM sanitizers with the NetBSD base system. So remember a couple episodes ago, we talked about the, or we covered the LLVM sanitizers in NetBSD or how NetBSD uh, improves on integrating LLVM into their base system. And this is yet another update, um, writing that over the past month, uh, this is over at the NetBSD blog, of course, uh, over the past month, they've merged the LLVM compiler RT sanitizers uh, within the base system. And they've also managed to get a functional set of makefile rules to build all of them. So namely, ASAN, UBSAN, TSAN, MSAN, LibFuzzer, SafeStack, and X-Ray. And in all supported variations and modes that are supported by the original LLVM compiler RT package. So that looks promising. And they've uh, submitted a patch for internal review, but it was um, uh, pushed uh, through Tech Toolchain first, their mailing list. Uh, they're still waiting for active feedback on moving it in the proper direction. And the final merge of build rules will be done uh, once they get LLVM 8.2 RC2 in the base, as there's a small ABI mismatch between uh, LLVM 7.0 from SVN and compiler RT uh, version 8.0 from SVN. And they uh, adapted with a hack (laughs) all the upstream tests for supported sanitizers to be executed against the newly integrated ones uh, with the base system, and everything has been adjusted to pass with a few exceptions. And that still needs to be fixed. So ASAN dynamic.so tests are still crashy and UBSAN tests were around one third of them failing due to an ABI mismatch, uh, which caused a number of new features for UBSAN that are not supported by older Clang LLVM. And the changes integrated with LLVM projects, uh, there have been a branching of LLVM 8.0 in the middle of January, causing a lot of breakage that required collaboration with the LLVM people to get things back into proper shape. Uh, they've also taken part in the LLD porting effort, the debugger, uh, with Michael Gorney. And post-branching point, there was also a refactoring of existing features in compiler RT, such as LSAN, SafeStack, and Scudo. Uh, they had to apply appropriate patches in these sanitizers and temporarily disable LSAN until it can be fully ported. And so the changes in the actual base system are, uh, out of the context of sanitizers, they fixed two bugs that relate to the previous work of interfaces for debuggers. So there's uh, two PRs here to mention, random panics in VFS mount root and uh, ptrace wait, uh, tracemem v4 crash bus test cases fail. So these are the two. And the next milestone there is to collect feedback for the patch, integrating LLVM sanitizers, and merge the final version with the base system. Uh, return to ptrace kernel fixes and start to work with a focus on improving correctness of signal handling. And as always, this work was sponsored by the NetBSD Foundation and definitely benefiting uh, NetBSD as a whole. Uh, yeah, 
good luck with the integration work and there will definitely be future project updates from that mm -hmm. site. And then uh, over at DistroWatch, they've done their review of FreeNAS 11.2. <clears throat> they say, uh, the project's latest release, FreeNAS 11.2, uh, at first I nearly overlooked the new version because it appeared to be a minor point release. However, a lot of work went into the new version, and 11.2 offers a lot of changes compared to 11.1, uh, including a major revamp of the web interface, support for self-encrypting drives, and new backward-compatible REST and WebSocket APIs. These updates are also introduced IOCage for improved plugin and jail management and simplified plugin development. Uh, I definitely found the web interface for creating a pool in 11.2 to be far superior, especially when you wanted to do things like select which disks go in which pool. Uh, in my case, I wanted to create a RAID Z3 of three drives uh, each from four different shelves. Uh, and so I had to manually pick the drives. Um, I reported some bugs with the interface, but it became actually possible to use the web interface to do that. Whereas in 11.1, it was uh, pretty much impossible to do it that way. Uh, aside from going through the whole web interface like 140 times. Um, and especially the problem there was it takes a long time to load. Hmm. Uh, there are still some other improvements I would really like to see in FreeNAS, especially with uh, regards to trying to import the pool and get the list of drives and so on. Um, it, Even though I told it in the web interface, no, these the, the pool I'm trying to import does not have any encryption, it still runs a Gelly dump on every hard drive, which probably works fine in a testing VM with two or four hard drives or something. But on a real machine with 168 hard drives, that takes a long time. <laughs> Hmm, to run sure. uh, disk info, gelly dump, gprocho, and like eight other commands on every single drive. Uh, you know, what takes two or three seconds to load uh, in a, a small setup suddenly doesn't scale at all when you have 168 hard drives. Anyway, uh, there impressions from the review here. Say the FreeNAS boots to a text console where you can... Uh, do some basic configuration and uh, get directed to use the web interface. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that there's no password protection on that console. Anyone with physical access or uh, you know remote access via the BMC or into the virtual machine has root access and access the shell, changing your settings and taking the system offline. In a large business environment where the NAS is likely to be behind a locked door, this is probably convenient, but in a small office, it might be problematic. Exploring mm. the command line options, I found FreeNAS runs about 32 different processes on a fresh install using um, about 460 megabytes of memory and 310 megabytes of wired memory, the bulk of that being for ZFS. Um, they say the web interface uh, is served over HTTP only. HTTPS is not enabled out of the box, uh, but you can add it later, mostly having to do with certificates. Um, the web interface uh, begins by showing us a dashboard with an overview of the server's hardware. Um, one personal Allen critique of that is it shows the raw size of the disks, not the usable size. Uh, and so that will always lead to people being disappointed when they're like, oh, I logged in my machine that has 
one petabyte of usable space, but it claims it has 1.4 petabytes of usable space. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, most of that's used up by the RAID Z3 and other things. Maybe it should show uh, the actual amount of space you could use, not the total amount that's available to ZFS. <laughs> but in general, I found the new UI uh, much nicer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, le- it looks clear and... Uh easy Although, especially if you have a lot of options that it's still yeah. not overwhelming it still a little weird to navigate on my laptop with the only 1080p screen without 4k um especially without a real mouse which is the trackpad i sometimes had a bit of difficulty although that's mostly just i'm not very adept with a trackpad because i normally use a real mouse sure yeah Anyway, they have a very detailed review, so if you're interested in uh, getting a preview of what FreeNAS 11.2 looks like, check it out. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. We have for you, as first thing, uh, instructions for installing Refined to dual boot a computer with FreeBSD and Windows, and possibly other OSs as well. Uh, yeah, Nicholas uh, Sizing, who we interviewed a couple weeks ago, uh, provided this, and it gives you basically everything that you need to do the dual booting with uh, EFI, yes. especially uh, if so you're it, switching. Yeah, so this is installing Refined as uh, an EFI application, and then it will give you a graphical menu to pick your OSs. Um, when I've done this to my laptop, I've always had to do the install of Refine from Windows because uh, the EFI management tools for FreeBSD didn't exist. But now they do. Uh, so this tutorial walks you through actually using the EFI boot manager command on FreeBSD to add FreeBSD to the list and activate it and configure Refine so that you will get a menu at boot and be able to choose between Windows and FreeBSD. Yeah, which is uh, excellent if you're still not sure whether you uh, stick with one of the two OSs or want to copy files around or well, check on one In my one case, thing. it was on the older ThinkPad. It was, I need to be able to boot Windows to record interviews at conferences. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and when- the rest of the time, I will run FreeBSD. Um, of course. It also came in handy uh, before I had the Mac when, you know, oh, I need to make a Skype call or something, so I'll boot Windows for that. Um but yes, so this has all the instructions on setting up uh, Refined and making it the default and then having Refined let you select between uh, your different boot programs. Um, sadly, Refined itself is GPL licensed, so we can't build it into FreeBSD. However, Refined is actually based on a previous project uh, that was abandoned called Refit. Refit <laughs> itself was actually BSD licensed. So, if some people were actually interested, it might be nice to go back to the the refit code, which is still languishing around on on SourceForge, um, and see if it's possible to actually get it working up to uh, a minimum usable state so that maybe FreeBSD could install uh, refit by default uh, and make the installer have options to, to coexist with Windows and so on a little nicer. Oh, yes. Would this be a good Google Summer of Code projects? Or project? It could be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, you heard it here before. and uh, It might be. Yeah. I don't know what kind of experience you need to actually work on something like Refit. Uh, mm. 
but yes, uh, it, it might actually be a good Google Summer Code project. I just don't know who they would get to mentor them. Someone yeah. who understands EFI, like Eric McCorkle or somebody. Probably, yep. Good candidate. Uh, yeah, but other than that, um, uh, check it out and uh, do a boot mm -hmm. to your heart's content. Uh, next item we have is NetBSD Desktop Part 6, uh, the VI Editor, Tmux, and Unicode uh, Terminal. Uh, over at United BSD. So this is part of a series, as you might have guessed, yeah. and describing how you can make uh, your uh, terminal experience a little bit nicer than just uh, gray terminals. Uh, you right. also have so Unicode there's, support. Uh, there's an environment variable, term, which defines what type your terminal is. Um, and so these are how you would get a UTF-8 aware terminal uh, for NetBSD. Uh, so the terminal environment variable defines a set of capabilities and behavioral uh, procedures of all CLI programs. By looking at the term info database uh, for the descriptions, this is essential for programs that like drawing pipes on standard out and so on, or for example, graphical editor like VI. Well, maybe graphical is wrong, visual editor like VI. <laughs> and naturally all programs rely on, you know, curses or slang or something like that. Um, a broken or null or dumb term easily screws up all those applications. So the rxvt-unicode terminal emulator uh, includes a nice term description for modern displays and supports 256 colors and UTF-8. Unfortunately, the package source package uh, neither installs nor compiles these descriptions into the default version. Uh, so they actually show how to set the package options uh, enabling Unicode and so on, and then recompile the RxVT Unicode package. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, these packages also work on other BSDs or other Unix systems, so it's not NetBSD specific. Yep, and then they talk about some of the differences between VI, NVI, Vim, and so on. Uh, lots of different... Uh, editor commands and stuff they covered there, uh, including setting up, uh, you know, their dot .files and so on. Yeah, and how to exit uh, the VI editor without rebooting your machine. Um, <laughs> well, it's good to know, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, they also <laughs> talk about uh, Tmux and using that and configuring it however you prefer it. Setting all yeah. the key bindings and so on. Yeah, it's definitely a good start, and a couple of commands in, are in there that I didn't even know. That's not a reference. <laughs> yep. So okay. if you're interested, uh, most of this stuff will apply maybe with a little uh, adapting for the package system and so on to any of the BSDs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, next we have Unix flowers for you. <laughs> This might sound a little bit huh, weird at first, but uh, we found this at geekrant.org, and uh, they were digging around in Unix system directories on Mac OS X today, uh, or actually searching uh, for Joe, which uh, he, they thought it installed, but it was nowhere to be found, and stumbled upon the directory user share misc. Within that folder, there's the file flowers, which is a listing of flowers and their meanings. Uh, so, yeah, that's the listing here, and uh, it's short, but maybe people find some interesting things in there so uh, here is for example let's see what do we start with so african violet it's such worth is rare 
or apple blossom preference or the bachelor's button celibacy uh yeah in case you don't know what you should put in your mail signature then maybe you can draw something from that uh, file but you see that it, it had some meanings and remember it's uh, all the berkeley code oh that's the last change date from from the uh, top comment here august 6 1993 could be maybe they abandoned that file at, at some point uh, but I guess it will be in various Unixes. So maybe they have more flowers there or more meanings. Yeah, I have no idea where that came from or what it was for. Like, I know there was a dictionary and some other things included by default, but I'm not sure what this one is for. Mm. The format doesn't look very... Well, it's got no space after the colon or something, so it seems like it's kind of meant to be machine parsed, but having... Chrysanthemum, comma, space, red seems like that is a little anti-machine parsing. So I don't know. Yeah, With Valentine's Day coming up, uh, this might be worth for someone. Apparently you should give clovers instead of roses. <laughs> yeah. uh, just to let you know, yeah, this is the proper flower to buy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so MISC is uh, interesting in Unix, as people mentioned in the... Uh, uh, chat here that uh, there's also birth tokens for example and yeah that's um, yeah if you get bored on unix check out that directory uh, we also have more uh, interesting stuff uh, from our favorite or one of the favorite bloggers uh, marius saborski about freebsd upgrade procedure using gpt and he even, ha even have a little bit of graphics there or at least uh, explanatory pictures yeah, so he's, uh, <clears throat> if you ever wonder how the GPT partition scheme works, this has good detail on that. But he goes on, uh, you have a few different ways to upgrade your operating system. For example, if you're using ZFS as your root uh, file system, you can use boot environments to accomplish this task uh, in a quick, simple, and safe way. Boot environments are the new it thing in FreeBSD. However, today, we will discuss the more old-school approach uh, uh, to this problem using GPT flags, which is uh, something I think Pavel... Um, I'm thinking of the wrong Pavel now. Uh, Pavel Dodek uh, came up with specifically to port something kind of like NanoBSD to GPT. This approach may be used to upgrade your operating system even if you don't use ZFS and you want your system to be on read-only partitions or something like that. Uh, so he looks at these uh, GPT posters that uh, Jared Atkinson came up with showing where the bits of GPT live. So the GPT is divided into two parts. First, the GPT header, and then the partition array. As you can see, every partition entry contains some attributes. Each operating system may implement uh, its own set of attributes. According to Wikipedia, Microsoft is already using bit 60 for read-only, 62 for hidden, and 63 for do not auto-mount. FreeBSD implements three uh, additional ones, boot me, boot once, and boot failed, uh, that are respectively 59, 58, and 57, uh, which are not used by anything else. The boot me attribute points to the partition which should be used to boot from. If there is a partition with two flags, uh, like boot me and boot once, then this partition is chosen to be booted from, but it will be used only one time. How does the bootloader accomplish this? simply by removing the boot me attribute from it um, when it sees boot once. 
Uh, so as soon as it tries to boot, it'll remove the boot me and boot once flags so that next time, if that boot doesn't work and you power cycle a machine, it'll go back to the normal partition instead of the once one time only partition. Yeah, that's clever. Uh, it also sets the boot failed attribute uh, on the partition. And then if the boot actually succeeds, it erases that. So in their little example here, they create a new GPT partition table, add a boot partition and two UFS partitions. Uh, then they set boot me flag on partition number two. And so when you do gpart show, you can see that the first of the uh, three UFS partitions, mm -hmm. of course, they only showed creating two. Anyway, uh, the first of the two uh, UFS partitions has the boot me flag. So when you boot from a partition that has the boot me flag, uh, then it just works. Uh, so when you want to upgrade, you'll boot from the partition number two, then write a new image into partition number three, and then you set the boot once uh, flag on partition number three. So now you can see that uh, partition three has the boot once boot me flag set. When you reboot, uh, it will erase the boot me flag uh, and boot this partition. Now that the boot me flag is gone, it means next time it won't boot that one. It'll go back to booting the regular one. So if the upgrade doesn't work, you'll be okay. So now your upgrade occurs or not. Uh, if it's actually fails to boot, it will replace the boot once flag with the boot failed flag, and then you'll be able to detect that when you boot back into the original image and be able to alert that the upgrade didn't work. Mm -hmm. So if there is another partition with the boot once and boot me attributes, uh, then it would be tried then and so on. So uh, when an upgrade uh, was successful, the difference is that the system will remove the boot once flag and report success. Uh, the reporting is done by the startup script uh, GPT boot. If you're using the boot once flag as an upgrade procedure, it is a good idea to modify the script. And if the upgrade was successful, change that boot once to boot me so that the new version uh, becomes the default. Uh, the logic in the bootloader is also more complicated than what he actually talked about. You can have multiple boot once uh, and boot me attributes on different partitions. If these are set and only uh, problem is with the booting kernel, there's no need to reboot the machine. The loader can actually automatically try other kernels. I pointed that out. Uh, I prefer to do the reboot because it's useful for our upgrade process is handling more complicated things, like for example, upgrading a database. We can uh, imagine that we have one additional partition with data which uh, we don't want, uh, which we don't overwrite. So we have two system partitions uh, that we bounce back and forth upgrading with images. And then the third partition actually contains like your database and your stuff you want to be persistent. Mm -hmm. Similar to what ZFS and boot environments does, except for you have to partition your disk to get these and you each one has a fixed size. Whereas with ZFS, you can create as many file systems as you want and the free space is shared between them instead of each one being a fixed size. But it's uh, very nice to be able to understand how the previous system worked or how to accomplish something like this with UFS, especially if you're going to have a read-only system or have a very small disk or very small amount of memory where UFS will make more sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a nice write-up to, to actually make it uh, more palatable to see, you know, 
it it's working and how to actually booting is not trivial and it's working <clears throat> no, so well. No, I wrote well. an entire paper just on how boot works and I didn't even cover this bit of it. <laughs> I could write a whole yep. different paper on just... <laughs> That's the second part. Yeah. Fail-safe booting. <laughs> mm. Yeah, okay. Um, then we have pool-based backups using OpenBSD base. So this one goes... Um, they describe uh, they, uh, the MySQL dump uh, scripts and approaches to backing up a database at one point, and they know that it isn't an OpenBSD base because MySQL is support, uh, but it says uh, just add it for a specific system, and it's easy to add it, and everything else is done through tools from the base system. And so they describe that they basically have this um, uh, Chargin account, Chargin.1, Um yeah, they want to protect the user data and be able to easily restore that. And the important things for the backup here are that single timestamps backup files are there. No additional software is installed above what's already on the box. Backups are pulled from a central server, not pushed to one. Uh, they have a portable script and use privilege separation, of course, so local accounts can't access the backups. And they talked a bit about um, other uh, things they tried, like Borg backup and... Uh, they use a huge NAS now to store the backups, and uh, then they start configuring the backup accounts for for the home partition and walk you through how to set up the SSH key generation and uh, run through the MySQL uh, data backup procedure. But they even just dump the list of packages so that they can feed it into their package manager to reinstall those in the future and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they do uh, tarring up the files that they want to have and include some of the those they don't want to have. And yeah, then creating the final archive. And yeah, then you have the full backup script at the end of the post here. So you can uh, use it or adjust it to your needs in case you have other backup needs. And But yeah, this is a pretty straightforward way of doing yes. that. Uh, and now, I guess we didn't actually cover it, but um, the open rsync uh, project well, we has in the... uh, been integrated into uh, OpenBSD. Oh, excellent. So, They're quick on that. Soon, yeah. Uh, I thought it was uh, a number of months more away from being very usable. Mm, okay, they trusted enough to integrate that. That's already something. And I guess they will polish it further and make it more uh, complete, if, <laughs> if you can say that. Uh, yeah, th- so that's, that's a good... Uh, integration here um all right yeah next up we have developing wireguard for netbsd that's interesting because wireguard is making the rounds or making the news uh that's mm-hmm. over on github and they have the internal implementation of wireguard for netbsd mm-hmm. and uh the needed kernel options are listed here of course you need to clone the repo to get that and then basically how to use that you uh, create a couple of interfaces with if I have config and then you generate the key, the private key and configure uh, the keys with that private key or the interfaces with that private key uh, add a peer to it uh, with a hopefully a different key than the one displayed here and then you try to send package over those and hopefully you get a reply uh, yeah. so there's a caveat <clears throat> section but it looks promising so far yeah, it uh, looks like it has to pull in libsodium and so on into the kernel, but other than that, it does look uh, pretty interesting. I wonder how long before maybe somebody tries porting this to FreeBSD. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess this is uh, the groundwork already, and mm-hmm. hopefully the porting work is easy for the other BSDs. And next up, this is uh, Alan's news item here. The OpenZFS user conference is here April 18 till 19 in Norwalk, Connecticut. Yes. Um, so if you use ZFS and uh, you'd like to come up to the east coast of the U.S., uh, or if that's nearby for you, uh, you should definitely come out. Uh, there are also speaker slots still open. Um, they have 30-minute slots, so that's about 20 minutes of talking or 25 minutes of talking and a few minutes of questions. Um, so there are a number of speaker slots still available. So if you are using some... Uh, this is a user conference, so if users actually want to hear from other users, and the developers would like to hear how people are using ZFS. Uh, so it doesn't have to be, you know, I've made this change to ZFS. It's not the ZFS Developer Summit, it's the ZFS User Conference. Uh, so we want to hear uh, how you're using ZFS, where ZFS isn't working as well as it should for you, anything like that. Um, so there are plenty of speaker slots available, and we look forward to seeing many people at the ZFS user conference. Mm, yep, that's definitely something to look forward to or talk to. I mean, we never know what interesting use cases ZFS sees in, in companies or even private use. So that's the conference you should speak at. Yes, I know um, in previous years, uh, there a company came and talked about how their time series database uh, created a worse possible case fragmentation problem on ZFS uh, and then they got advice on how to solve that and so on uh, and you know a lot of useful things have come out of this conference and I would look forward to talking to more people that are just even just using ZFS and how they would like to see that be easier or better mm-hmm. yeah because uh, user feedback is important mm-hmm. so you'll you'll be speaking that's already yes. set Um. Yes. I think my topic is going to expand slightly because they gave me a one-hour slot. Ooh, demo time. No, I'm going to talk a little bit more about tiered storage and how to make that, uh, how we would want to build that into ZFS. Mm, excellent. In addition and yeah, to my, thanks. And related to uh, the VDEV properties work. Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. I know you talked a bit about before, so I look forward to uh, seeing mm-hmm. that. Uh, and yeah, thank you to Dato for uh, hosting that conference again. And mm-hmm. yeah, look forward to it. Although I can't go because I will be in Aberdeen during that time. But um, yeah, it's certainly something uh, to watch. Mm-hmm. Hope and, to see some people there. Yeah. So, Noxbuck, uh the, they have been meeting for a number of years now, but uh, this one is on February 25th, their next iteration of the BSD user group in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, with Joe Maloney talking about how to set up Jenkins for continuous integration testing. Yeah, I'll cover basic installation, setting up Nginx as a proxy in front of it, how to do authentication, matrix-based security, uh, storing Git credentials, creating additional Jenkins nodes, running local jobs, adding test results, uh, publishing artifacts. So like you can have it automatically make an ISO or an executable or whatever, Um, how to send email alerts, how to build plugins and uh, adding a job from Git. Oh yeah, that's uh, already something. A lot of Mm -hmm. things you can do with that. 
uh, they are um, are they uh, recorded somehow or streamed? I'm not or sure. Do we have to be. Uh. Um, but it will take place at the IX Systems uh, office in uh, Tennessee. Okay. Or maybe we see Joe Maloney uh, give that talk somewhere else, maybe, if mm-hmm. it's uh, that popular. Yep. So, yeah, if you're in the area, check it out. Go there, say hi to a couple of people, and talk all things BSD. Uh, speaking of all things BSD, it's time for the feedback and questions uh, in this week's episode. Uh, we want to keep doing this session uh, unless you don't provide us feedback. So, yeah, send us at uh, everything that you have, questions, comments, show notes, ideas, stories that you would like to see in the show. Uh, everything goes to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Or you can also hit us up on uh, the Twitters. Um, yep. But yeah, this is the easiest way to reach us. So first one who wrote us is Jake about C programming. Uh, this starts with the following. Good morning. Thanks for continuing to do the show. Do I remember correctly that Alan taught himself to program in C? If so, how? Uh, He just finished reading a beginner C programming book and got through it fine, but don't know where to go next. Do you guys have some suggestions? Uh, So basically, uh, I think the big start of it was, uh, wow, uh, 20 years ago, (laughs) reading the source code for uh, the IRC server uh, that I was using and making some small modifications to it just you know adding an if here or there or whatever and not really understanding dereferencing pointers and causing it to crash a lot and so on um <clears throat> then i mostly did other programming languages uh a lot of php and perl and so on which all have a, a c-like syntax uh which meant i understood the syntax pretty well and just not necessarily you know the finer points of pointers and memory management and so on um and then when I got to try actually programming C, uh, I think one of the most valuable resources for me was actually the the libc man pages on FreeBSD. The fact that many of the basically the built-in functions of C or of, of FreeBSD uh, all have man pages with uh, you know the list of all of the inputs and what the error messages it could send are, and um, even sometimes example code. I found that quite useful. Um, And then beyond that, it was mostly reading a lot of existing code. Uh, Turns out having access to the source code for an entire operating system means that you can always think it was like, oh, I want to know how to do foo. Well, which program does that on FreeBSD? Let's go look at the source code for that. Um, And so, you know, I looked at uh, the source code for the MD5 command, which basically reads a file and then... uh, Creates the hash, it's hash and prints it back out and so on. Uh, It's relatively straightforward, although it does do a couple of slightly complicated things in the fact that it's built to do all the different hashing algorithms. So it's actually one binary uh, that then does it for, you know, MD5, SHA1, SHA2D6, SHA512, etc. And a lot of the heavy lifting is actually done by a library, which you can go read too, but uh, yeah. Mostly, I think the biggest part for me was actually just having a project in mind. Uh, the first thing I wanted to do was uh, the little tool I started writing called UCLCMD, which used uh, 
an existing C library, libucl, uh, that I want to be able to interact with it from the command line and basically read a JSON file and be able to print out, you know, a certain sub-value or sub-tree. Uh, and so it was just because I knew what I wanted. I knew what I had for input, this JSON file, and I knew which I wanted for output. So it was just a matter of playing with it until I got that to work. Um, so yes, I think the biggest thing with learning almost anything about Unix or programming or whatever is just having uh, a kind of smallish but tractable goal in mind. You know, there's something you want project. to do and accomplish, and you know, you might have to go down some other alleys and learn some other stuff first. Mm-hmm. But by having somewhere you're trying to go, it makes it easier to get there than just be like, "Well, I want to learn C programming." Is um, a lot harder to do than I want to make a small C program that does X. Uh, that's much more something that you can actually work towards and actually see yourself getting there as you get closer and closer to the output you want uh, versus just the kind of ambiguous goal of learning C. Yeah. I would also recommend getting another C book because one book explains it only in one way and another book might have different content or explain it in a different way. And, uh, yeah, give yourself a little project because programming is only learned by actually doing the programming, not by reading much. But yeah. you can still reference a lot of uh, material out there. And Architect actually from the chat room points out that uh, you should start writing useless things and start scratching your own itches. Um, look, for Architect, for example, wrote a basic IP address calculator because he didn't want to install one with features he didn't need. And then he got into it more and more. And so little project for your own. Uh, amusement or use even and then from there on you get the experience and can move on to other projects. Yes, uh, and they also mentioned use a version control system, learn Git or Subversion or something uh, because especially when you're just iterating and stuff, you're going to want to be able to go back and get you know older versions of your code and so on. Mm-hmm. Or undo a change that you made uh, only after, you only found out it was a bad idea a week after working on it he, wanting to go back is uh is nice to be able to go back and not have to go find you know food at old that backup and so on <laughs> yeah get the old uh, version that was not broken by some error or something that you just thought you would fix uh, but that's normal i mean and there's also a yeah. bunch of uh, good forums out there and uh, advice so if you get stuck somewhere then you have someone to ask mm-hmm. yeah um for me like a lot of my early programming was actually done in Visual Basic on Windows, uh, back in the early or late nineties. Um, but it was again scratching my own itch. I made a little program to generate random passwords because I needed to send them to customers all the time when I reset their password. And so, just having a little something that would generate them was nice. Or, you know, I had a little tool that I I made my own slideshow program because uh, I wanted to. I had a CD full of images uh, for my dad, and I wanted it so that when you put it in the computer, it would just auto-start a slideshow, and you could press escape to make it go away. Uh, so I did that. Or, you know, it was always little things like that. Um, some of them were ridiculous. Like, back when I was, like, 14, I didn't know that there was such thing as a protocol analyzer, something like TCB Dump or Wireshark. So when I wanted to figure out how web browsers talked to websites. I made a little program that listened on port 80 on localhost. And when you connected, 
proxied what you sent to another socket that went and connected to the website and then put it in my browser at localhost. And then oh. quickly learned about the host header and how if you tell your browser it's going to localhost, the web server at slash dot is not going to answer. It It's going to be like, oh, you don't want the slash dot. You want some other domain and you get a weird website. And you're like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, well, but it uh, kept you interested and basically that's what the people yes, although, started how how much more damage i could have done if i had if someone had just told me about ethercap or etherpeak or wireshark or something like that i don't think wireshark <laughs> existed back then but you get the idea yeah and you quickly de- uh, explore especially with c that you will uh, find that there's a lot of things that it touches with the operating system or that you need operating system knowledge to understand the basic concepts or um, some of the- yes or no well, yeah, you can keep it in, a, in an abstraction layer that's very high level, but you can also go deeper depending on your uh, interest. So next question. But I, yeah, so we have covered that. Uh, next up is Farhan with an explanation of router advertisement. Damon, I think that it's. Uh, it's short, uh, asking us, uh, can you do an episode on the explanation of RTA DVD? I'm trying to set up a router to advertise, but I've never been able to get that working in a jail. I've never seen packets even hit the e-pair or bridge or anything. Ah. <clears throat> so if it's an e-pair, it's a VMage jail, so that might actually work, whereas... Obviously, running router advertiser in a um, vanilla, like non-VMage jail would probably not work. But in a VMage jail, it should. Um, so one end of the jail yeah. is sending the advertisements and the other end is receiving them? Or what's the oh, I think setup? he wants his router to advertise V6 to machines outside of uh, the physical machine. Like oh, that network. would make sense, yeah. Uh, but yeah, if they're not hitting the other end of the e-pair, let alone the bridge, then it's hard to say. Uh, I've never actually used uh, RT ADVD. Um, most of my experience with V6 is on servers on the internet where I just have a static allocation, nothing auto-assigned. I don't know. If, if someone else knows, knows, they should write something up and explain it to us because yes, it's obviously uh, something that... People have questions about. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting thing. Um, and with an upcoming jail book by a certain author, I guess that will become even more popular in that space. Uh, just to tease a little bit. Um, <laughs> a good book. Um, next up is Nelson uh, with the Buck Bounties and Open Source Software, which is actually from last year, if I'm not mistaken. So let's with we'll, yeah. It's from December, so this, but yeah. Yeah, so uh, this story might be a fodder for a future BSD Now webcast. Uh, in January, the European Union starts running bug bounties and free and open source software. And yeah, I got uh, this from someone else as an email. And yeah, um, so uh, they have an update from, uh, uh, let's see, January 16, uh, with more bug bounties becoming alive. Uh, they have a full list in that. So it's basically... Um, finding bugs and giving money for all of the ones that they are found and projects can um, uh, you know enroll in that bug bounty and uh, yep. so money. there's uh, bounties for FileZilla, Notepad++ uh, Putty, VLC lots of other stuff, KeyPass 7-Zip um, what I'd be more interested to know is 
or, or to C maybe, would actually be a bug bounty program similar to this, but the bounty is for fixing it. Yeah, finding well. is one like, thing. Yeah, so so uh, a general bug bounty program is about reporting the vulnerability, but for open source stuff like this, it'd be nice to actually see the bounty cover actually coming up with the fix. Although, you know, uh, in some of these cases, a developer from the project may be a better person to develop the fix than the person who finds the bug. Uh, but maybe what uh, the bug bounty system should do is is split a bounty between the person who finds the bug and the person who fixes the bug. Mm. And uh, so most... that um, it also makes sure that the bugs get fixed, not just found. Yeah, and some of these things, or most of these projects listed here, except maybe the GNU C library, uh, glibc, are userland programs and not much uh, operating system related, mm-hmm. but definitely finding bugs is good. And yeah, maybe but there will be more. Things people use a lot. Like, yeah, it's, sure. It's but. nice to see a bug bounty for Putty because lots of people use that. Yeah, so definitely something to watch. And uh, thanks for letting us know. Uh, we could probably uh, revisit this uh, throughout the year and see if there's something new. And yes, this pretty much wraps up our episode this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for listening. And as always, if you have something, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll have more show content in the future. Thank you. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs>